You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. All right, happy Tuesday, beautiful country, coast to coast to coast. How's everyone hanging in there on a crappy spring day where there's snow falling and winter storm in Ontario? We'll just deal with it. Suck it up, buttercups. There must be better days coming. Well, I'll tell you what's ahead. We got a crazy show. I mean, you're going to meet some amazing people. You know, today... If you live in Ontario, there's going to be a provincial election in uh, under two months. And the liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, is trying to make waves today. And he's saying, if I am elected, a liberal government, if elected on June 2nd, will ban handguns in the province within a year. Really? That's right, he said. He's going to join us. Stephen Del Duca is going to join us so you can hear it from him. How's he going to do it? The Ford government are putting the interests of the gun lobby ahead of the Ontario victims of gun crimes. They swore an oath to protect, Del Duca says. So he's going to do this. Now remember, Ottawa, under Justin Trudeau, said, look, if, you, if municipalities want to ban handguns, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for the buyback. We'll help. So now the liberals in Ontario, if they say, okay, well, if you elect us in June, we'll ban handguns. Banning handguns is going to be a significant debate. There's a powerful legal gun owners are going to be livid. On the other side of the debate, there are Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives are saying, look, Legal handgun owners aren't the, aren't the cause of crime. Violent crime's not caused by legal handgun owners. It's gun smugglers and criminals. You're targeting the wrong thing. So let's work on illegal guns pouring into the city, illegal guns pouring over the border, illegal guns, gun smugglers. We've got a problem, but you've got to have the right solution. So this debate Now, politically, of course, this is going to put Del Duke on the map. I mean, a lot of people couldn't pick him out in a milk carton right now. He's invisible, politically. Who who knows him? But this is going to put him on the map, because when you start talking about this, they know this is a political strategy to get yourself noticed. So Stephen Del Duca, the Ontario Liberal leader, will join us as he's aiming to make some noise ahead of the June 2nd election, saying, if you're ele- if we're elected, we'll ban handguns. And, and you can already start. I'm going to have him on in about half an hour. And you can already text me if, <coughs> pardon me, if you have questions. My mom will probably text me and ask, Ev, are, are you still sick from the COVID? And I'll say no. I sometimes get that little cough. It lingers. Don't worry, mom. I'm okay. And I love you. Uh, text me at 71010 if you've got a question for Del Duca. I'm listening. Maybe you're a legal gun owner. Maybe you're a victim of crime. Maybe you're a mayor. Maybe the Toronto City Mayor, John Tory. Mayor, I know you listen. You used to be a 
host on the station that we broadcast on, News Talk Toronto 1010. Maybe the mayor of Ottawa wants to uh, text us at 71010. Maybe the mayor of St. Catharines, Walter Senzik, my old uh, buddy, wants to text in or call in. Banning handguns. What do you think, folks? What do you think? So that's on the program today. I, I'm really, this, this is a new debate, and, and we've got the guy on it. Now, you know we always get the newsmakers on. But, but now you wonder if this is a moment of leadership. And we're going to talk a bit about leadership today. Um, because there's a bunch of things that I want to talk about. By the way, we're going to go live to a journalist who is in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, which the, which the Russians are bombarding heavily as the battle in the east in Donbass is, 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 is brutal. The Russians are humiliated after the sinking of the Moscow. They're humiliated after they were booted out of western Ukraine. This has been a bad war for Putin, but that doesn't mean it's not a deadly, vicious, long war. It doesn't mean he's given up. It means he's doubling down on terror, doubling down on the attacks. He has, even though it's gone badly for 70 days, it doesn't matter. He's pouring in more weapons and he's slaughtering the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are doing heroic work fighting them. And we're going to talk to Dasny Westrop, who's a journalist in eastern Ukraine, because you need to know what's going on. This is Europe. It's the most dangerous situation in the world right now. Full stop. And I know today Canada dropped more sanctions on Russians, including uh, Putin's daughters. You know, these are pinpricks. These are important. I'm not going to minimize it, but it's not going to have a material impact on Vladimir Putin. The only thing that will is he's got to lose militarily. They got to lose. They got to lose. And the only way they're going to lose is if the West keeps pouring ammunition, artillery, missiles, any tank weapons, any aircraft. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about people being stranded by Sunwing or WestJet in places like Mexico, wow, that's a thing, right? And the mask mandates in the U.S. are dropped on airlines. What about Canada? So we'll talk about that. But let me talk about leadership because something happened yesterday. I interviewed, you know, during the uh, conservative leadership race and, 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 you know, everyone's, by the way, today it's a big focus on the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area. Uh, Jean Charest in town. I know he was on my colleague John Moore's show this morning on News Talk 1010 Toronto. And I've spoken to Jean Charest. John's spoken to Jean Charest. Pierre Polyevre is in town. He's going to talk about housing and a house and the inflation. So Polyevre's there. And I know Pat Brown's in that area. Like, like this is a big area. They got, they got to win on. They got someone's got to crack the 905. That's the Conservatives' holy grail right now. But another uh, former MP from the the GTA, Leona Alislev is throwing her hat in the ring. We'll find today's the day where you, this is the final day if you want to declare that they got to come up soon with 200 and then another 100,000 bucks. I don't know if she'll make the cut, maybe she will. Now you remember Leona Alislev is a is a military veteran. She's a very accomplished person. She she was elected first as a liberal and then she crossed the floor in 2018. 
and became a conservative. And then kind of controversially, Andrew Scheer made her the deputy leader and conservatives were scratching their head at that. Like the blue paint is wet here. Like she just became a conservative. You're making her the deputy leader, huh? But, you know, he did, didn't work out. Then she lost in the last election. She lost her seat. So, you know, she's been a conservative for a grand total of four years and she lost in the last election, but she's throwing her hat in the ring and, you know, she's a person of note. So I had her on the show last night and I I interviewed her and I'm going to play you this interview because maybe I'm old fashioned, but I think if you want to run for the leadership of a party and you're going to go on national television and national radio, you should have some solid ideas. You should have some policies. You should say more than a couple of bumper stickers like, we need to secure our country. We need to grow the economy. We need to regain trust. We know that. Anyone knows that. Those are bumper stickers. If you want to run, you got to have solid ideas. How? How do you restore trust? How do you lower the price of housing? How do you rearm the military and afford it? So I asked her those questions, and I'm going to play you her answers. But I'm going to warn you, there's not a lot there. And a senior conservative said to me after, Evan, there are two kinds of people in politics. There are those who want to be something and those who want to do something. Beware of those who want to be something. They're using politics as a vanity project. Focus on those who actually want to do something. I'm going to play this conversation with someone who wants to be the leader of the Conservative Party, Leona Alislev. You can decide what she wants to do or be. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Time for leadership. Uh... Leona Alislev has declared she wants to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Candidates have until today to declare their intention to run in the race and submit the necessary paperwork. Um, The entrance fee, by the way, is $200,000 in addition to a compliance deposit of $100,000. The deadline to sign up members is June 3rd. And if all goes well, a new leader will be uh, declared September 10th. The former MP, Leona Alislev, Joins Pierre Polyevra and uh, Jean Chray, Leslie Lewis, Patrick Brown, Scott Aitchison, and Roman Barber, who have added their names. Now, look, she was first elected as a liberal. Uh, she crossed the floor in uh, 2018, and she became part of the Conservative Party of Canada. She became the deputy leader under Andrew Scheer. She lost in the last election in her GTA seat. So I, I spoke to her, and I asked her, look, you know, Ms. Aslev, great to see you. I've known you for a long time, Ms. Aslev. You've been a conservative for only about four years. You lost your seat in the GTA. That's a crucial vote-rich area that conservatives need to win if they hope to get government. Why should conservatives believe you're the person to lead this party? I think the most important thing is that I did win as a conservative in 2019 and that and then became the deputy leader of the conservative party. And that leadership is what I am looking to bring to the conservative party. What went wrong? Conservatives have lost three elections. What's wrong with the party and what does a new party need to do to win? I think that's 
a very important question and why this leadership race is so important. Essentially, we're in a one-party state right now because the majority of Canadians don't feel comfortable placing their trust in our Conservative Party. So this leadership race is about inspiring those who are Conservative members and those who might consider becoming Conservative members or might vote for us in the next election to see us as a reflection of them and their okay. values and to possibly, of course, place their trust in us to govern. But what went, But let's get to the... You say it's a one-party state. I mean, we've got... Uh, the Liberals, the Conservatives, the Bloc, the NDP. Um, you're saying it's the Conservatives' fault that the Liberals keep winning. But So let's go to the issues no, about I'm, what, what I'm needs to that happen. A democracy needs at least two parties that everyone believes can govern. And right now, we have a Liberal government that is behaving completely unchecked. And we have a Conservative Party that needs to earn the trust and confidence of a greater number of Canadians. And that's what we're going to do okay. in this leadership race. And that is what we will do in the next election. But, but I'm just trying to figure out what you're saying about conservative liberals have a minority. It's a minority government. I know they've got this um, arrangement with, with the NDP, but that's that's pretty new. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what, what you mean when you say it's a one-party state, do you not think cons Canadians trust Conservatives? And if not, what do they need? What do Conservatives need to do to gain the trust to govern? Evan, I've been hearing from Canadians across this country. Many of them are close to giving up on our country, and what we need to be able to do is show them that now is not the time to give up. Now is the time to invest in this country, find solutions listen to all parties, uh, all parts of the country, unite this country and focus on the important things that we need to do to position ourselves, not only for tomorrow, but for the next hundred years. Oh, oh okay. Uh, let's get, let me get some details on what that means. Um, you, you left the Liberal Party because you say there's a lack of Canadian defense spending. Um, you said that it's been significantly underfunded by all governments, conservatives and liberals alike. Um, to get to 2% of GDP, which is the NATO goal, you need an, another $25 billion a year, according to the parliamentary budget officer. Uh, if you were a leader, would you put in 25, uh, an, another $25 billion a year, and when would that happen? Essentially, right now, we're looking at massive global instability. We're on, we have a war in Europe. We need to look after our sovereignty and security. And yes, we need to invest much more quickly and much more significantly in defense. There's no question that our finances are in trouble. And so we would have to manage the growth of our economy by investing in industry, our resource sector, our energy resilience, the big things that will drive our economy so that we but then I, have... I, I get it, but it's a choice. But, it, but, but I'm, you know that. You've I'm not saying it. I don't um, think that it is a choice, Evan. I think you have to do both. I think that people trade with well, people... Well, how do you manage trust. the final... So where does, where does the $25 billion come from? I mean, it is, politics is about choices, whatever politicians say. Where do you find $25 billion a year to hit 2%, which you're advocating for, and, and still invest in everything? What would you cut? 
It's about investing in an economy that then grows so that you have money to invest in defense. And by investing in defense, you will have the trust and confidence of your allies and and other countries to invest in the industry in your country and your own country to grow. So you have to do both. The economy and security go together and you're going to have to grow the economy so that you can pay for defense and you need to have defense so that people will trust you enough to invest in your economy. Just real quick, uh, do you think NATO should have a no-fly zone over Ukraine? I think that we as uh, NATO allies and we as liberal democracies have a responsibility to do more for the Ukraine. We need this liberal government to remove the visa requirement for refugees that are people, Ukrainians that are wanting to come to Canada. And we need to expedite the export permits so that we're not preventing critical military equipment from leaving Canada to get to Ukraine. Okay, but can you answer the question on no-fly zone, yes or no? I think we have to do more, and I think that we have to determine what that looks like. You ran under Aaron O'Toole's carbon pricing plan in 2021. You supported it. Do you still support a price on carbon or cut it or keep it? We have to eliminate the current liberal form of the carbon tax. And what would you put in place? Would you put a price on carbon? We have a responsibility to lower greenhouse gases, and we can do that in any number of ways. First of all, by using our own Canadian energy and becoming energy secure. We also to have to be able to incentivize corporations to be able to do what they can to reduce greenhouse gases. But until we can give Canadians a viable alternative, we cannot punish them with a carbon tax that is not giving the opportunity to change their behavior, but simply putting a greater burden on them in terms of their finances. Oh, okay, so, you, so you're saying uh, no, no price on carbon. That's what you're saying. I'm just trying to get clear, clarity. You're saying cut the price on carbon and you would not have a price on carbon. Is that fair? On individual consumers. Cut or keep the national child care program that the Liberals have negotiated with the provinces. Would you keep it or cut it? I think that childcare is an important conversation and we have to look at what problem we're trying to solve and how best to solve it. Until we understand the finances of the country, we're not in a position to determine that. Ultimately, we need to make sure that our taxes are fair and we are incentivizing corporations to look after and and provide meaningful work for employees and daycare is a critical element to being able to have women largely in the workforce and we know that we need more women in the workforce okay so you keep that um just last question then on on um uh housing and affordability what would you do to make housing more affordable to first-time buyers I think that housing is an important conversation, just like daycare, just like these other things. But ultimately, Evan, we have to look at the root cause, not the symptoms. The root cause is that Canadians writ large are feeling as though they've been left behind. We are losing capital foreign investment. Our industry hasn't been invested in. And our economy is not competitive, not productive, and not doing what we need it to do. Those are the priorities. When we get an economy that's back on track, then we're in a position to make sure that we have all of these other uh, aspects looked after as well. 
Leona Alislev. She's running to be the leader. Did you hear any solutions there? You tell me. 71010. Stephen Del Duca is going to join us on banning handguns next. Stay with us. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Look, it's a serious world out there. Welcome back. Uh, Actually, the liberal leader in Ontario, Stephen Del Duca, is going to join us uh, in 10 minutes to talk about his plan to ban handguns in the province of Ontario if he's elected, and he'll do it, he says, within a year. So he is going to explain that to us. Look, leadership is about solutions, whether you agree with them or not. And sometimes, sometimes a leader has a solution, and you like it, and you vote for them, and sometimes they have a solution, you think this is the craziest thing in the world. So we'll find out what you think about the guns thing, but the conservatives are, you know, they've lost three elections in a row. They're desperate for a leader to beat Justin Trudeau. Stephen Harper lost, and Aaron O'Toole lost, and Andrew Scheer lost. And so now there's a leadership race, and 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 um, today's the deadline to throw your hat in the ring. And I spoke to one of them, the newest, Leona Alislev. And I, I want your thoughts on something at one 1010 or 71010. Do you think that it's fair to ask for real solutions like problems about affordability? I would expect someone who wants to be the leader to have a real answer. How would you lower the price of homes? They've got to diagnose the problem. And they've got to give you a solution. Prognosis. What's the solution? What would you do about a price on carbon? The climate change issue. What would you do about growing the economy? What would you do about tackling inflation? What would you do about solving affordability? What would you do about defense, national defense? So, look, I thought Leona Alislev, who was elected as a liberal, she crossed the floor in 2018 to the conservatives. She became the deputy leader. She served in our military. Thank you for your service, Leona Alislev. That's fantastic. But then I had her on this program, and I had her on... uh, I just wanted to, I didn't try to trap her, but I asked her for some solutions. And I just assumed if you're going to run for the leadership, you you would have something ready. These weren't trick questions. For example, I said, you know, you left the Liberal Party because you didn't think they were serious about national defense. There's a war in Ukraine. Canada has said that they were going to meet the 2% of GDP of gross domestic product to put towards our national defense. That's the NATO promise. Canada's at 1.3%. Under Harper, it was worse. The Liberals are saying, well, we're going to put another 7 or $8 billion, but over five years, we're never going to get to 2%. But she's, 2% would require another $25 billion per year. $25 billion a year. And this is something Leona Alice loves passionate about. But here's what she said, and I want you to try to decode this. I asked her about getting to 2% of GDP. Where would she get another $25 billion a year? Here's what she said. Essentially, right now, we're looking at massive global instability. We're on 
we have a war in Europe. We need to look after our sovereignty and security. And yes, we need to invest much more quickly and much more significantly in defense. There's no question that our finances are in trouble. And so we would have to manage the growth of our economy by investing in industry. Okay, so what does that mean? Like, you know, I've got slogan phobia. I'm allergic to empty slogans. So I pressed her. Listen, I asked her, where where would the money come from? Where do you get 25 billion a year? Because she says she wants to balance the books. She's mad at the liberals for spending too much. So you got to balance the books, but still you need 25 billion a year for defense. Okay, fair. That's your priority. I said, you know, politics is about choices. She says, no, it's not. I said, well, what would you cut? It's about investing in an economy that then grows so that you have money to invest in defense. And by investing in defense, you will have the trust and confidence of your allies. What does that mean? The, so here's what she said. The economy and security go together and you're going to have to grow the economy so that you can pay for defense. And you need to have defense so that people will trust you enough to invest in your economy. I mean, this circular argument makes no sense. Yes, you got to grow the economy to invest in defense. I get my question is how people are listening to you. You want to be the how will you grow the economy to more quickly get twenty five billion dollars for defense? How will you do it? And then what is so you have defense so people will trust you enough to invest. Is there a correlation between the amount countries spend on defense and the amount of foreign investment we get? I've never seen that number. Is there any correlation between foreign, direct foreign investment in Canada and the number that we spend on investment? No. Security matters. I, I just, listen, I asked you about the carbon tax. Would you cut it? Well, you know, we de- this is definitely unfair. We've got to fight the environment. I'll definitely cut it. Well, so would you keep it or cut it? Well, we need to fight climate change. How? No, no answer. Like, again, I'm not picking on our, these are, I just wanted to know an answer. Am I crazy to expect that I'd like something more than a bumper sticker slapped across my forehead from someone who wants to lead and potentially be the prime minister? John, what's up? I am going to be voting uh, for the leader of the CPC. And quite truthfully, in my opinion already, there's there's only three choices for me to, to make the decision between, which is, Polyev, Charest, and Patrick Brown. Uh, And even there, you know, there's only two that are really giving me any real meat and potatoes uh, in terms of where they stand on issues like climate change, national defense, uh, the economy, the budget, affordability. Um, Right now, I'm leaning more towards Polyev, but I don't think he's... I think Mr. Charest is much more electable, and quite truthfully, I think we've had enough of Justin Trudeau. You know, look, at maybe Leona Alislev is going to, you know, first she's introducing herself, and maybe she'll come out with some more sophisticated policy. Uh, that that may be her strategy. But But I'm with you. Like, I get that all these candidates have to introduce themselves. They've got to diagnose the problem. There's a trust issue. There's a spending issue. I get it. They they speak in generalities. But in the end, I mean, you're a voter. 
Don't you want to know, okay, thank you, you've got me, you've got my interest, you've got me riled up, now just answer us, like, answer the question straight, right? Do you support the child care? If not, what's your answer? Do you support the carbon tax? If not, what's your answer? Do you want to get, you? if you want more money to NATO, higher for the for defense, where are you going to get it? Don't you think you want some meat and potatoes? I, I do, and the other thing I would say to you, Evan, is that there's two conservative leaders who basically lost to Justin Trudeau that didn't excite voters enough. Harper, on the other hand, I would put him more up to being a a long-term prime minister, log in the tooth, and it was time for a change. So, but we need someone now that, in my opinion, Mr. Trudeau's right for a change election, but we need someone to give Canadians a real choice to vote for, and I don't think she's it. Yeah, I appreciate the call. Um, Again, my job is not to weigh in on whether a solution is good or bad. Like, it's not my job to say, oh, this is the right thing or the wrong thing. That's up to you. You're the voter. I don't push that. My job is to ask for sustenance. Like, back that up. If you're going to say, hey, when I say to someone, hey, you can't do both, you can't, Cut the deficit, spend $25 billion, uh, keep the child care, have increase in health care. Can't have everything, okay? Either go into debt, you either raise revenues through tax, you either grow the economy. How are you going to do that? Everyone says you want to grow. The- Nobody's running. Nobody's running. And the liberals, the conservatives, the NDP, the bloc, no one says, here's my plan. I'm going to shrink the economy. Everybody wants to grow the economy because you grow the economy, you get more revenue, and you can get more stuff. If it was so easy to grow the economy, everyone would do it. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to grow the economy. So coming out and saying, you know, I, I, I need, we need to grow the economy and, and make people better and have a better quality of life and pay less taxes and have more, you know, like, great. I want to I wanna drink more, have more sex and, and, and be fitter and be smarter and be richer. How? I don't know. No, leadership means you have to have a plan. Why is that? Why is asking someone for a plan now radical? Now, the liberal leader here next has a plan to get rid of guns. We'll find out what it is. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Well, there's an election June 3rd in... Ontario, and today the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party came out, guns not blazing. Stephen Del Duca has announced that if elected as the new premier of Ontario, his party and he will ban handguns in the province within a year. And they'll do it, he says, with the assistance of the federal government. And he joins us now. Hello, sir. Hey, Evan, thanks so much for having me back on. Steve Del Duca, good to have you. Uh, okay, t- tell me first, let's get to the proposal, and then maybe we can tease out how this is going to happen. What do you plan to do? Yeah, so we've seen, sadly, over the last number of years, we've seen the number of gun-related deaths, the amount of gun-related violence in major Ontario cities and even smaller towns growing. It's moving in the wrong direction. And uh, what I announced today was that if elected June 2nd, Ontario Liberals would move forward with banning handguns everywhere in the province because the stories that we're seeing, the stats that we're seeing, 
Uh, you know, people deserve to have safety in their neighborhoods. An example is just a couple of days ago over the Easter weekend, uh, we saw five individuals in Toronto and the Scarborough area who were just coming out of evening prayers from their mosques. Five men who were hit by, by bullets from a drive-by shooting. Uh, we're seeing more and more and more of this. And we're drawing a line in the sand on this one. Enough is enough. Enough talk. We want to deliver on a handgun ban. We're committed to it. Want to work with our partners municipally and federally to make it happen. But I wanted to make it crystal clear. This is the direction Ontario Liberals will move in. Okay. The first question you will get is when you cite, you know, horrible incidents like gun violence, like you just did, is those aren't legal gun owners. Those are crimes. And you know that the the first question you're going to get is that you've got the you've got the cause wrong. The cause is not legal handgun owners. The cause is illegal handgun smuggling, illegal trading. It is gang violence with guns and banning all handguns will not do anything because legal gun owners aren't the problem. What will you say to that, Stephen Del Duca? Yeah, you know, Evan, I've heard that over the years, but let me just let me just say we have another example. Back on April the 12th, just a couple of weeks ago, again, in the greater Toronto area, there was an individual, there were two men, 21-year-old and a 35-year-old, who were both shot at random, both killed, tragically, one out of the 21-year-old outside of a subway station in Toronto. And guess what? The individual who pulled the trigger, who used those weapons, had, according to police, an arsenal of legal guns in his possession. So this notion that it's only illegal guns that are coming from other parts of the country or across the border, and that's the only problem that we're facing, is just not true. And here's another thing. As far as I'm concerned, whether it's more illegals versus legal guns or it's more legal versus illegal, one one gun-related incident or homicide or, or murder that's committed with a legal handgun is one too many. But, but hold on, Actually, but hold on. But when you say one is one too many... It is. Is your logic, oh, there's one bad accident with guns, therefore we should ban all guns? That, that you know, by that logic, um, you know, you could say one person drove over someone in a car, you ban cars. Like, are you going to punish legal, safe gun owners because there's a few, There, I'm not going to minimize, but there are some incidents where there's an abuse by legal gun owners. But the vast majority are organized crime. By the way, we don't have great data on on the legal market, the the origin of of, uh, firearms, according to Stats Canada. But the vast majority are gang violence. You know that. That's what the stats say. It's illegal gang violence that uses handguns for the violence. So does every legal gun owner now have to lose their gun? Yeah, well, so first of all, a couple of things to keep in mind. Handgun homicides have been increasing year over year. And just to point out, made up 61% of firearms, firearms-related deaths in 2020. I mean, we have, we have been having this conversation in Ontario and in Canada for decades, and yet the numbers continue to go in the wrong direction. And what, we, what some people do, like the Ford Conservatives, throw up their hands and claim that it's only an illegal guns issue, so they're not going to step forward and do the right thing. And what I'm saying is, look, to the families of those two men who on April 12th, just a couple of weeks ago, lost their lives because a legal gun was used by a legal, a legal gun owner was used that, sorry, we can't do anything because the majority of stats historically suggest it's illegal. To me, that's not good enough. And but, so but, I, but, I'm, but, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being really clear about this. The time has come in the province of Ontario 
for us to work with the feds and work with our municipal partners to deliver on a handgun ban, you know, and I'm prepared to do this work. I think it's important to drive, drive this message home. One is too many when you're talking about something that's completely preventable. That's why we're going to move forward in this direction. My old colleague, uh, now he's moved on to global, but uh, Colin DeMello tweeted out, why didn't the Liberals ban handguns during their 15 years in office? Del Duca says gun violence is, quote, spiraling out of control and lays the blame at Premier Ford's feet. In fact, there were 51 gun deaths in Toronto in 2018. Colin DeMello now at Global Rights. Ford's first year, there were 52 in 2005 under the Liberals. So yeah, like, you know, it's not you know, exactly, quote, spiraling out of control by those stats. Well, right now in the city of Toronto alone, this year alone, 49 people have been killed or injured already this year in the city of Toronto alone this year. And so, you know, it's fine for you know people to talk about why didn't something happen 20 years ago. I'm running to be premier of this province. The election's on June 2nd. To me, this is about the community safety people expect mm. and deserve right now and moving forward into the future. And the numbers are going in the wrong direction. Doug Ford and his team don't want to do anything about it. I think it's because they're in the pockets of the gun lobby, the narrow interest that they but they've always just pursue. They've, they've just invested $267 million over three years for police services, right? Funding through the Community Safety and Policing Grant for 147 public safety initiatives. I'm just, they have a guns and gangs strategy now. To, there's a provincial gun and gang support unit, supports gun and gang investigations and prosecutions. You don't think that's enough? No, I don't. And I think it's more empty words. These are more empty words and empty promises by Doug Ford instead of doing the right thing. And by the way, when he's been asked about a handgun ban in the past, he's pointed the finger of blame elsewhere. He's blamed the feds. He's blamed a whole bunch of other things instead of looking in the mirror and saying he has a responsibility. In fact, he's talked about not wanting to punish the so-called good guys. Well, again, there's a guy just a couple of days ago who had a, an arsenal, these are the police's words, not mine, an arsenal of legal guns, legal handguns. I, I get that, but, but, but anecdotes but, aren't data. And, like, anecdote, like but, I know but, that there's an anecdote. Oh but, oh, my goodness, Evan, you're saying anecdotes are, are not data. Tell that to the families of the two guys who were killed on April 12th in Toronto. But I'm not, I'm but sorry. again, again, I'm, I'm not going to minimize that. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out if, you know, is the solution a total ban? By the way, it's, there'd be a gun buyback program. I know that the liberals have this, uh, the federal liberals have a gun buyback bill, C21, that will give you municipalities discretion to buy it and they can, um, but how much would this cost? Because we've seen the cost of the federal gun buyback program at close, according to the parliamentary budget officer, $800 million. Yeah, so a couple of things. Let, let me just say, I want to be really clear about this. You know, I am determined to deliver on the handgun ban. But I, I also said this today in my remarks, and it's in our press release as well. Our plan is to also work with municipalities and the feds on the flow of illegal guns into, in, into this province. I want to be clear. It has to be a multi-pronged approach. But to simply dismiss the handgun ban uh, that we're proposing because it's not the whole solution, to me, is a mistake. Right. Now, secondly, on the cost, the feds have earmarked or have I've got about 10 seconds, so she'll go, go, Steve. A billion dollars from the federal government that's on the table. I want Ontario to lead. I want us to go first on this, to access some of that funding, to deliver on things like a buyback program. And I think that's the right direction to go in. I'm going to take calls on this. But by the way, one correction. I said it was a June 3rd election. June 2nd, of course. Stephen Del Duca, thank you, sir. I'm going to take texts and calls on this next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. 
The Ontario election is June 2nd. The deadline for conservative federal leadership members is June 3rd. So here I am so caught up in all these uh, races, I, I mixed up the dates. June 2nd, Ontario elects a new leader. Now, if you're listening to us in B.C. or in Quebec, um, this issue is still relevant, which is because the federal government, remember, the federal government under Justin Trudeau said, look, we are going to support municipalities if they want to ban handguns. We passed Bill C-21, which will give municipalities the discretion to ban handguns if they choose with bylaws restricting their possession, storage, and transportation. And we'll also help pay for a buyback. You know, remember, they've already paid for a buyback of recently banned weapons. The so-called assault-style weapons, which is, is not really a... I mean, that's a category that they, they, they talk about, as you know. But the parliamentary budget officer kind of weighed in on that. Like, how much would it cost to buy back just the existing ban on assault rifle? We're not talking about we're not talking about handguns. And according to the parliamentary budget officer who did a study, you're you're talking about you know closing in on I don't know eight hundred million dollars. Now you can probably probably increase that because it usually goes up. Now, Stephen Del Duca, the leader of the Ontario Liberals, said if he's elected on June 2nd, within a year, he will ban handguns in Ontario. And I've asked for your reaction at 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Now, on one side, when I spoke to Stephen Del Duca, I said, look, you know the argument is going to be that the vast majority of, of violent gun crimes using handguns is, is gang-related. And they're not legal gun owners. And here's what Mr. Del Duca said to us. So this notion that it's only illegal guns that are coming from other parts of the country or across the border, and that's the only problem that we're facing, is just not true. But I didn't say it's only illegal guns. I said it's mostly Illegal guns, of course, of course. Are there legal gun owners that commit crimes? Of course. No one pretends there's not. It's a question of proportionality. And is the gun problem with legal gun owners so bad that a total ban on handguns is necessary? And according to Stephen Del Duca, yes. And here's another thing. As far as I'm concerned, whether it's more illegals versus legal guns or it's more legal versus illegal one one gun-related incident or homicide or, or murder that's committed with a legal handgun is one too many. Of course, one is one too many. But the question is, is therefore the logical, efficient, and productive solution to ban all handguns because one gun-related incident is too many? And I pointed out to Mr. Del Duca, you know, someone that drives their, we've seen it, mass murder with a truck. We don't ban that. Murder with a knife. We don't ban knives. And now, again, I'm not trying to diminish handgun violence. It's a real issue. And there's going to be real concerns about whether or not people need a handgun. I understand that. And this ban, you know, we have too much. Handgun violence is real. And there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a cloud on the data where they're coming from and the smuggling, and I get it. But I want you to weigh in. 
Evan, the liberal gun policy, if elected, just lost the election for them. As you said, legal gun owners, 99% of the cases, I didn't say 99%, but I know you are, but in the majority, I said, are not involved in crime. They need to increase sentences for any use of gun crimes. Great show, says Lanny. Uh, yeah. So, Lanny, this is a great question. First of all, yes, guns and gangs we need to crack down on. The question is, is the war on guns working? You know, every statistic on crime, crime goes down when kids, you, you know what it is, and, and, and there's some great non-government organizations and, and charity organizations that, that have shown this. Pathways to Education, something that I used to volunteer with for many years uh, in downtown Toronto. You know, violent crime, gun crime, also drug crime, all this stuff goes down when you keep kids in school. You know, you, you keep kids in school, give them mentorship, crime goes down, gun violence goes down, communities thrive. So the question is, is cracking down on guns the only method? But there's no question smuggling is a big issue, Lanny. Evan, uh, banning all handguns is not possible because of illegal use. Del Duca is conflating trafficking and guns with citizens, says Jack. Jack, you're making a good point. Making them illegal, will that even stop? Um, okay, let's see. Um, what do we got? John and Guelph, go for it. Hi, Ellen, Evan. Um, these... Uh criminals that are using guns, uh, they get apprehended by the police, and then the justice system turns them back out on the streets. So it's uh, it's a revolving door that the justice system is. Uh, there's The police do their job, but uh, once they, the criminal comes in front of the judge, he's back out on the street again with bail. It's That's the problem. These people should be locked up. Well, oh, I appreciate the call. Um, I, I don't know if that's the problem, the, the quote, the, the infamous revolving door. There had been under 10 years of Harper mandatory minimums, and we had the same level of crime. So um, I'm not 100% sure, to be candid, there's data on that, this, this myth of the revolving door. It, it has happened. Um, again, i got to see the data on that. Uh, another text, Evan, on the other side. Why does any civilian need a gun? Aside from law enforcement and the military, nobody needs a gun. Um, but Rob in Sarnia has a different view. Rob, what's up? Hey, thanks, Evan. My pleasure. How, uh, by the way, how's it going in Sarnia? I had a good buddy in my youth in, in Sarnia. I'm glad you're there. Um, well, the snow's melted today. Hey, that's something to cheer about. Yeah, uh, they, uh, one comment that came in there from one of the listeners uh you know, why does anyone need a firearm of any sort? Uh, they should only be uh, 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 the only people that need firearms are police and military. I, I saw a movie about that once. It was uh, called Schindler's List. But uh, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the same old from any liberal or, or progressive. Uh, their goal is to eliminate all firearms ownership yeah. in civilian hands everywhere. That's their bottom line. And they use the old, uh, let's... Uh, peel the skin from the onion routine. First they take the handguns, then they came for the semi-automatic rifles and shotguns, then they came for the single shots, until there's none left. So that's, that's well, the real that's goal. true. So you're you're right. Care. I, I mean, you're, you're right to say that, yeah, they do want, um, except I think for the liberals, to be fair, I think that, you know, I think there are certain hunting rifles that they say, but, okay, you're saying it's a slippery slope. By the way, I, I, I don't know about the... Uh, 
uh, I'll let the reference go in terms of um, whether firearms equals a free society. I mean, the UK is a free society and they have much tougher gun laws. Um, so, so, you know, it doesn't work like that on data, but again, every culture handles this differently. Uh, Mark, what's up? Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, as per the, the female, the lady on the conservative that came on before. Leona Alislev, yeah. Yeah, I forgot her name. Sorry. Um, you criticized her for not having a plan, which you were right to do. And then Mr. Del Duca comes on. He did the same thing, in my opinion. He doesn't have a plan. Yeah, well, that's a great. That's what I um, asked him. How are you going to do it? How are you going to pay for the gun buyback? It's a great question. Like, sure, it was a terrible thing that a legal gun owner did that, and it's it's terrible when illegal gun owners. So, in my opinion, the problem is not the owner or, or the gun. It, it, you know, it's the owner. Sorry. Well, now, it could be. Let me ask you, I, and I know that, this, but the, the, there is a famous, you're, you're touching on something, I would just, if I have a minute, you real quick, you say, you know, guns don't kill people, people do. But the avail- now, but the stats go, the more that. guns there are, the more homicides are. You know that in a society. I, I misspoke. What really needs to be happen is that if you commit a crime with a gun, you go to prison... Oh, man, I'm, I'm at the end of my break. I don't want to cut you off, but you know I have these enforced breaks. I want to keep this conversation going. Stay with us. As this story changes, we react. This is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We're going to go, if we can, reach our journalist who's reporting in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. Right now, we will. And I say that because we're desperate to do this. Um, Russia's launched this uh, battle in the Donbass in the east. They're bombing uh, the the entire country uh, into, into what were hitherto safe cities, like in the west, Lviv, where you see a lot of reporters. That's where most people are fleeing to so they can get across the border to places like Poland. But the Russians are bombing that. They're torching Mariupol. And they've escalated their attacks because Putin's humiliated that the war has gone badly, that the Russian lost their flagship battle cruiser, the Moskva. And so now he's pouring in troops to try to capture the east, the Donbass and Luhansk, where they've been basically fighting since 2014. And uh, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said now we can already state that the Russian troops have begun the battle for the Donbass, for which they've been preparing a long time. Now, it is true that most people living in Donbass are are Russian-speaking. And there are separatists there that have been backed for a long time by Moscow. And this... We all thought before Vladimir Putin's madness revealed itself, where he tried to invade the entire country and thought he'd capture Kiev in 48 hours. We thought that he would do what he did in Crimea and snatch, try to snatch the Donbass. And that was going to be where the, the, the war would be located. But instead, he amassed 150,000 troops. 
and decided to snatch the whole country and try to capture um, Kiev, the capital, Kharkiv, just to the east of that on the other side of the Dnipro River, and Mariupol on the southern coast. And he's been frustrated in those aims, so now he's reverting back to this while launching cruise missiles all over the country. And this has been an existential challenge to NATO, to Canada, to the U.S., to the U.K., to Europe. Uh, Arming Ukraine is now not just a military imperative, it's a moral imperative. It's not just a military necessity, it's a moral necessity if you believe in democracy. If you believe that countries shouldn't invade another country, shouldn't commit war crimes, because that's what's happening. Forget the propaganda, the both sidesism. We've seen, you know, when people are tied up and executed in their civilians, that's a war crime. There have been multiple accounts of rape, rape as a weapon of war. Children, hospitals are being bombed, civilian targets. These are war crimes. So this idea that there's, oh, there's two sides, that Russia's there to denazify a country led by a Jew... That they're going to denazify because yes, yes, we've covered these stories for years. This is not revelatory conspiracy theorists. There have been members of the Ukrainian military who have been associated with fascism. We know that. There's fascists in every country. God knows why, but there are. None of that is a pretext for invasion, a pretext for slaughter, a pretext to wipe out cities, to kill children. None of it. Zero. Not a scintilla of it. It's a disgrace. So we're trying to reach this journalist, Daphne Westdorp, who's a journalist currently in Kharkiv, but Kharkiv's getting bombed. And we just literally reached her a couple minutes ago, but the phone's not there. And this is what war reporting's all about. We obviously pray and hope she's okay. Um, since she's not there, and I know I, I said I'd continue some some of these um, calls on the gun issue, which, by the way, uh, I, I know is blown up. And, and Nick was ready to take your calls at one eight five five six three three ten ten. If we get Daphne, I'm going to go to her. But just so you know, but if you do want to call in on this liberal plan in Ontario to ban handguns within a year of the election on June second. One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. If you're living in Quebec or British Columbia, if you're in Kelowna or you're in Vancouver, or you're in Victoria, listening to us, where we have beloved listeners, I'd also like to know if that's the kind of thing you would like to see. I was living in Quebec at university during the Polytechnique massacre. Uh, Bruce, go ahead. You're on the line. Then, um, yeah, a lot of uh, what I was going to say has is, is been covered, but a big point that uh, Mr. Del Duca misses, which a lot of uh, people miss when they make this argument, that there are already a lot of laws covering the use of, of all firearms, not just handguns. And um, why does uh, Mr. Del Duca think that by banning handguns, that somebody who's willing to shoot somebody else with a handgun is going to think twice about that? They're they're a criminal. They're already a criminal. They don't follow the law. So why does he think that the banging the handgun is going to make them think twice about it? Well, that was my question to him. You know, um, it's one thing to diagnose the problem. You know, if if I say to you, "Hey, you've broken your leg," um, uh, 
And what I'm going to do now is make sure you never walk again. You're like, well, I, I, I need to walk. I'm like, well, you broke your leg walking. You, am I going to ban walking and, and, and that'll help your leg? Well, you know, one person who has an accident is too many, but, but I just don't know if his solution is the one that's dealing with the right problem. And you may be right. Uh, again, there are many people who want to ban handguns, and I understand that. But there are many who say that the problem is the criminals, and uh, you can ban the handgun all they want. They're already existing outside the law. So you're shutting the barn door, and the horse is already out. And I get, exactly. I get what you're saying. Uh, exactly, by by yeah. the way, do you have uh, snow up there in Barrie? Uh, yes, it's uh, just lightly uh, snowing. It's not really accumulating too much, but yeah, it's it's coming down. Yeah, well, Barry's a good snow belt. Uh, hey, man, stay safe on the road. Uh, I appreciate Thank that. You. Uh, Sean, go for it. Hi, Evan. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. You're, 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 you're loud, loud, but go, but go for, for it, Sean. Sean. I, I just like to say that, you know, as much as the gun advocates would like to, you know, say that it's not their guns that are doing these things, every illegal gun started out as a legal gun at one point. And the bottom line is, Handguns really only serve one purpose, and that's to, to conceal it and kill another person. Other than that, you use them for sport shooting. And if that's what somebody's hobby is, and it jeopardizes my safety, hey, I'm willing to forego that hobby of that person. I mean, people, I mean, to be fair, you may be right, and then there's an argument. I'm not taking a side here, but, you know, people, people do go to the gun range to shoot handguns. Yes, and it's a hobby. But so you would not ban those? Yeah, handguns. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, you know, Toronto's got a gun buyback program. There's, there's lots of uh, buyback programs to get these off the street. I just wonder, again, let, let's say we did ban handguns. I, I, I just wonder how quickly would the stats fall or would we find out, oh, my gosh, it's all about illegal handguns. Uh, anyway, uh, do, you, do you have a, a real quick intervention in you, um, Robert? Well, the, the Google just—he's just out there trying to muck the waters, cause cause all kinds of problems. Like ninety-nine point two percent of people that own guns are respectful. They have trigger locks. They keep them in shooting ranges. They respect the right of ownership of a gun. I don't own a gun, but I know seven or eight people that do. And they're responsible, they're all good jobs, they're not fools, they're not dangerous people. So maybe uh, that Duca would be better off just to actually start thinking about how can you build an economy. Listen, I appreciate that. I like this conversation. Um, all right. Um, we could not reach Daphne in Ukraine. Uh, I hope she's okay. We're going to try to do that. Uh, but coming up next, speaking of, listen, this is the anniversary of the worst mass shooting in Canadian history took place in Nova Scotia over two days. And we're speaking about guns, so we're going to speak to Christine Blair, the mayor, um, which includes Portapique of the county of Colchester, where this mass murder happened. Remember, two years ago, worst mass shooting in Canadian history. to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Two years ago, over the course of two horrific days, 13 hours, April 18th and 19th, the gunman 
a gunman who decided he's going to go disguise himself as a Mountie Mass murdered 22 people. Killed a pregnant woman. And it rocked the country, rocked the world. And hard to believe it was just two years ago. And it all happened in the municipality of the county of Colchester in uh, Nova Scotia. Especially in the town of Portapique. And Christine Blair is the mayor of the municipality of the county of Colchester. And she joins me now. Hello, Mayor. Hello. Gosh, it's hard to believe it's been two years. I, I don't know where the time has gone, actually. It seems hard to believe as well, yes. Tell me what it's like. This is the yesterday and today over this nightmare of 13 hours. There's been so much investigation. Um, this is what happened. Um, what's, the, what's the community doing on a day like today, the sort of day two of this marking of this tragedy? It's been a difficult two years, and it continues to be difficult, uh, as you know and as you have stated. We've suffered the worst intended mass casualty in Canadian history, and intended mass casualties uh, result in trauma that spreads uh, to every victim, family, first responder, co-worker, a friend of every victim, the communities, the province, the country. It affects all of us in one way or another. And it has been a very difficult thing, again, as you stated, to uh, not only to have the trauma that is multiplied by the presence of COVID and was over the two years in 2020 and 2021, but that's complicated by the depravity of the acts of a person who was considered to be a neighbor in a rural area, in a rural setting where people are spread out while impersonating a trusted community figure, and that is an RCMP officer. It's, it's been difficult. There is no, no question of that, and it continues to be difficult. That's the, and I know words will never capture the loss of 22 people like this. Difficult, you know, barely contains the tragedy two years after the Nova Scotia shooting. As I speak to the mayor of the uh, county of Colchester, Christine Blair, Mayor Blair, uh, there was, of course, a mass casualty commission, public hearings, try to make sense of this. What has been uncovered about this? What what went wrong? How did this last 13 hours I think that the Mass Casualty Commission will find some answers and, of course, uh, uncover truths that uh, of what actually happened. Uh, we know some of the things that have happened. We have heard a, a fair bit of testimony. Uh, but And the people that are the most directly affected need to know that truth. They need to know it before they can, can heal. Uh, we'll never forget. We know we will never forget. We know that this will always be with us, but we also have to have people emotionally prepared for that truth, and that is a, a very difficult, uh, a very difficult thing to face. There are questions remaining, though, right? 
Well, I suspect that the Mass Casualty Commission, with the uh, information and the testimony that is given to the people by the people who have actually been involved in the mass casualty, will bring out those truths for us. They need that. It's important. Absolutely. Absolutely important. It is so important. You need to know. Uh, that need to know is is um, is something that you cannot uh, put a measure on. Tell me about the vi- the families because they must be getting an enormous amount of support, obviously. But but how have they been supported through this? Uh, they have actually. There has been a fair bit of support. Actually, the comments that we have received uh, worldwide. Uh, from Canada, from people across this country, from people in Nova Scotia and the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada, has been phenomenal. And that support is very, very much appreciated. Uh, what we need to, what we are recognizing now and what we are seeing from some of the testimony, of course, is that people are recognizing that um, even though we are strong people, even though we are resilient people, we need to have the understanding and the knowledge and the education of what is actually happening to our bodies and our minds because right. of the trauma that has been suffered in this event. And, and, and it's hard for you know those of us may are on the outside to ask questions that the commission is trying to investigate uh, about what happened when the first officers arrived, why they made their decisions, why they chose, for example, to chase by foot uh, instead of, you know, other options like going to the scene of the 911 call. And, you know, it is certainly easy to second guess when 20 people are killed and it goes on for 13 hours, but the truth is we need hard answers to these tough questions. Lives, lives were taken because of these choices. We do need uh, answers to all of the questions. And again, I believe that with the testimony of the people who were actually on the site, we will find some answers to those questions. And that is something that uh, that's happening over time. It will take time to do that, but it will also take time to absorb what we hear. It- There's been a lot of criticism, as you know, about this. Are you concerned about the trust that um, the Mass Casualty Commission, even though it's released some of the, quote, foundational documents, um, some people have been critical of it um, and, and that this could harm the healing process? Well, uh, the, that is a difficult question to answer. Uh, trust is um, a very important thing, and I believe that trust building uh, has to proceed with the work that needs to be done in both the intermediate and long-term phases of healing. Because, as I mentioned before, resilience does not protect you from changes in your body and mind that occur to all of us after such horrific events. So um, that is something that uh, that we will have to do some rebuilding on. But the trust, uh, we have a, 
a, a commission that has been put in place to conduct an inquiry. They have a job to do, and I believe that we need to put our faith in those individuals to get that job done and then see how we go from there. Mayor, uh, this isn't the day. I'm not going to – I'm trying to avoid getting too political because there's going to be times, and and I know many of the survivors have been incredibly critical of it, uh, but on the second year anniversary – um, I'm, I'm going to avoid trying to stir up more anger or more emotions about something that is already fraught with uh, tragedy. And, and I know it's a delicate day for members of the community in uh, the county of Colchester, in, in the community of Porto Peak and others. And, and Christine Blair, the mayor of that municipality, thank you for, for, for coming here. And I know this is a difficult day for those of us across the country. We just want to send your beautiful community, our, our love and support. And, and there's no, no words that are going to get anybody through this, but uh, we are there as a, as a country with you. Thank you so much for that. It is a heartbreaking day to bring these memories back, and the support that has been extended to us is very, very much appreciated. So thank you for your kind words. Thank you, Mayor, and please, uh, please do take care. Thank you. There's going to be a time, folks, for hard questions, and, and it's going on. Uh, the Commission of Mass Casualties is, the Mass Casualty Commission is controversial. I just don't think this is the moment on the, on the second day, marking the second year. I just, I just want to mark it because we're Canadian. We'll take a break. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Well, two years into this pandemic, people are flying again. By the way, the U.S. has just taken all the masks off their flights. Still here, you got to wear a mask. But the U.S. flights, a judge, a Trump-appointed judge said, you know, uh, wearing a mask laws are illegal. Uh, And so everyone just took their masks off mid-flight. But here in Canada, you you have to still wear a mask. But that doesn't matter for people who are in uh, taking Sunwing or WestJet. Um, I've had massive flight delays coming back from Cancun, Mexico to Calgary Sunday evening. They've been stuck as Stephanie Arthur from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, flying back. Uh, been a nightmare. Steph's on the line now. Hi, Stephanie. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, you think, my God, it's been like years. I haven't traveled. I'm getting going to go to Mexico. This is going to be great. I'm going to party. It's Cancun. And now you're basically in hell. What, what happened to you? Yeah, so our problem was similar to the Sunwing glitch. So they were unable to print our boarding passes when we arrived in uh, Calgary. And uh, I started recording kind of just because I've seen in the past where they need some proof of um, the situation. And as soon as I started doing that, I was told that... Uh, we wouldn't be dealt with any longer. And it wasn't because of the glitch in their uh, system. It was because of weather. And other people in line were experiencing that same problem with the WestJet workers. So it seems like they're trying to cover something up to avoid the more negative publicity. 
Okay, so what? So you were delayed going to Mexico? No, we we Coming were able back. to make our yeah we were able to make our Cancun to Calgary flight, and we arrived in the airport. But then our our Calgary to Saskatoon flight, we were unable to make because we had long waits to try to put. Uh, print our boarding passes. And so how long did you have to wait for that, Stephanie? So you were in Calgary waiting to go to Saskatoon. How long did that take? Uh, So we actually weren't given any, uh, like, any flight information that we could have for the next day. It was actually just all they told us was you're going to need to find a hotel, come back in the morning. So that would have been, we arrived at 12 o'clock. And so they told us to come back in the morning at 6 a.m. to try to get a flight figured out for us. Um, so nothing was really given to us about how long it was going to take to get back to Saskatoon. So we ended up renting a car that night and driving throughout the night. By the uh, way, it's about, what, 600 kilometers between Saskatoon and Calgary? Right, about six six hours. <laughs> and we had just been on a flight for seven and a half. So we we were on the flight for seven and a half then dealt with WestJet for about an hour and a half, then drove home for six and a half. <laughs> Holy so, mackinac. So, so, so and, and what was it like at the airport? Like, were, were a lot of people in your same boat? Yes, um, and some even worse than us. There was a couple from Kamloops trying to head home to Kamloops, and they were offered a flight to Kelowna, and if anybody knows the difference between Kelowna and Kamloops, like they're basically told take this Kelowna trip and find your way home from there (laughs) or the best they could do was fly out on a Tuesday evening almost at midnight 11 30 p.m. so that's so 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 now what what did they tell you the whole time the whole time so first before I started recording the conversation they said uh they were having a glitch in their system they couldn't print the boarding passes so they had to they had to get um, the manager called to try to help. The manager couldn't figure it out, so they called somebody else. They couldn't figure it out either. So by that time, we had already missed our connecting flight. Uh, they said the best they could do was possibly get us on the flight at 11.30 the next evening, but we'd have to come back to the airport. And then as soon as I started recording, uh, the exact word she said was uh, the flight was uh, delayed because of glitch in weather or because of uh, weather en route. Sorry. So it, her story completely changed from saying that it was a glitch in the system to saying that it was weather en route because of our delay. But the Saskatoon flight had still taken off. It had still taken off. So, and, and, and then this is all happening while people are stranded in Mexico. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, so, so did they ever say, connection. look, we're having a system-wide meltdown here? No, never, no. No, it seems like they were really trying to cover cover it up because of everything that was coming out with Sunwing. So it it did really seem like the, the attendants were trying to cover something up. It's really remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, yes. And, yeah, no compensation was offered despite... What, like what about food? Do someone say, okay, you've waited more than three hours or whatever. You're going to get dinner. No, no dinner, no hotel, uh, no transportation, nothing, 
nothing was offered. So you were expected to sleep in the airport. Um, and our luggage had already been sent to Saskatoon. So we had our, our luggage wasn't there. So we were in our holiday clothes still. So that was also a nightmare. We had nothing with us at the airport. Wait, it had gone to Saskatoon. How did they get to Saskatoon? If you couldn't get there, how did the luggage get there? Yeah, exactly. So our luggage was sent on the connecting flight. So somehow our luggage was able to make it there, but they had no proof of. Oh, so and you so didn't have were, like a and you didn't have like a I don't know a ticket on your phone. Yes, we did. We had so we weren't able to get the uh, when we tried to check in on the app because that's usually what we do is check in on the app so we can have our boarding passes on the Apple Wallet. And it said, uh, check-in failed. So then also in Cancun, they said we, they were having troubles with their system. You'll need to print it off in Calgary, the boarding pass. And then in Calgary, same issue, they couldn't print the boarding pass. So, yeah, it was definitely on their end with something with the boarding pass, just like the other Sunwing customers were experiencing. Um, but, yeah, our luggage was still able to make it, but not us as paying customers, even though we showed our receipt, we had wow. printouts of all our documents. Well, uh, after I, was this your first trip since the pandemic? Uh, yes, it was. Yes. Oh boy. But did you have a good trip yeah. before the nightmare yeah. of landing? Yes, we did. It was amazing. It was good to, to be well, somewhere. More. You were in Cancun. <laughs> what were you like at an all inclusive situation? Yes, it was. Yeah. WestJet vacations. It was through. Okay. Are you now, now is this like an all you can eat, all you can drink kind of sitch? Yes, exactly. Uh Oh, did you get into some trouble? <laughs> no, because I'm pregnant. Steph? <laughs> I couldn't drink. <laughs> you couldn't drink. But, uh, my family had lots of fun too. So did anyone get into some trouble? Uh, no, no, luckily not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying to get a good vacation story. <laughs> Stephanie Arthurs. Uh, but it sounds like you had a great time. Listen, focus on the good. What a nightmare, though. Uh, listen, yes, airlines. Yes. Hey, hey, note to airlines. People are pretty nice. Just talk to them. You give them real information about your real problems. People here in Canada are flexible. You know what they hate? They hate being, you know, spun, lied to, or or, or, or just kept in the dark. People just want an explanation. We're pretty, we're pretty flexible. Uh, thanks, Stephanie. Good luck. Welcome home. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I hope you travel again. Don't let this sour you. Uh, Stephanie Arthur's from Saskatoon. I maybe should have a good vacation story there. Uh, I'll see you on Power Play tonight at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. Thanks for listening today. Great conversations, folks. Love it.